Welcome to the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, where we aim to support residential investors move into the murky world of commercial property investment. And I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. So this week, I'm really excited to introduce Caroline Clayden, who I met a good number of years ago now at a property training event. We're going to go into that in a minute. But Caroline's got a unique model she's developed for some commercial space down south that she developed. And we're going to really dive into that in a little bit. But Caroline, do you want to just say hi? Hi, I'm delighted to be here, Jerry. Yes, it was November 2008 we first met. Um, and we we went on different paths at that point. And then our paths have now... They've come met. back again, haven't they? Um, at the time, we, both, we were both in property. We were both doing stuff, yeah. but at different stages. And I think that weekend that we both went to did turn light bulbs on for both of us didn't it but as you say we went off in off in different directions yeah. um we're gonna we'll maybe talk about that in a little minute but yeah. first off right i want you just to give us a bit of an idea of what you're up to right now okay, okay? so that people just get a context of who caroline is and what all the experience that you've you've had and could you, when you actually got started as we say there 2008 but prior to that you were already involved so do you want to just quickly yeah. take us through that story yeah well I, I i bought my first property in 1998 showing my age now um and i i was desperate to to buy more i knew that property was a way to get wealthy but I had no real concept of how to do it and I remember back then that somebody said well you have to remortgage take more money out of the property you've bought to then buy another one and I immediately said no I'm not doing that that was against what my dad has taught me debt is evil and so I just got back into my job and just worked hard save 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 saving and whenever I got a deposit, I bought a property and then back into the corporate job, save, 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 save. So over a 10 year period, I managed to get seven and I thought I was doing pretty well because I didn't know anyone else in my social circle that had seven. So I was like, great, you know, I'm doing I'm doing great. Um, that was on the property side. Meanwhile, in my corporate job as a recruiter, I was recruiting accountants and lawyers. I decided I wanted to no longer answer to someone else and be my own boss. So I thought, right, um, I'm going to set up my own recruitment business because it's the only skill I have in, in, in able to make money. And so set up our own recruitment business. Eight hour, me and my then um, boyfriend um, set up our own recruitment business. And the plan was always, look, it's, it's going to be a lifestyle business. Just the two of us, no staff, no offices. And any profits we make from that, we'll put into deposits for more property. And that was the plan. Um, and we set that up in the beginning of 2007. And for a whole year, it worked well. In fact, I think in that year, we, we, we bought two or three properties. Um, so, yeah. At the end, at the end of two thousand and seven, things were looking rosy, and then, of course, two thousand and eight came along, and nobody yep. good staff recruited for them. <laughs> All my clients turned around and said, "We love you, but we don't need you, um, and we're going to be making people redundant." So basically, our business died overnight, and we were sat there thinking, "Shit, our only way of making money is gone. What are we going to do?" And I have to say, that was quite a dark time. I really panicked. Um, I was very, very stressed. I was reading lots of books, entrepreneurs' books, thinking, well, lots of entrepreneurs have businesses that fail and then they come good. So maybe I can learn something from a book. Um, and that's when I discovered two really significant books. Um, Richard Branson's Losing My Virginity, uh, when he talks about expanding his way out of trouble when a business is failing. Um, and Robert Kiyosaki's Increase Your Financial IQ. 
and um, he was buying apartment blocks in Arizona with no money. And I thought, ooh, I need to learn more about how to do that. And that's really when this whole world of um, personal development and education was opened up to me. And um, the rest, as they say, is history. That's when I met you. We went on that course. And that, that wasn't a Kiyosaki course. I was just thinking in my head it was, but it wasn't a Kiyosaki course, was it? There was no, another um, celebrity yeah. put out there for that particular course. But at the end of the day, what we've discovered at that it was a weekend, wasn't it? it was just yeah. there are the veil was pulled back a bit, and actually, there's loads of other ways of raising finance, finding properties, developing them, strategies. There isn't one strategy yeah. which is called buy to let, which is what most people feel the taxi driver and everybody feels that's that's the strategy. And it was like, whoa, yeah. there's all this other stuff. But yeah. equally, um, for me, it was about um, finance and about pulling away the the feeling that you have to survive or, or build your business based around a really tight pot of money. And actually, there's, mu- there's an abundance. Yeah. And that was a big change for me that weekend. So yeah. after that, what happened? Well, we decided to work with a mentor. We went out on a buying trip in an investment area. And that was incredible because it just created a blueprint. And because we'd invested money for that, I was like, okay, I'm going to do everything you tell me to do. Because I've spent 10 years doing it wrong and not getting very far. And also, we learned on that that training that the seven properties we had weren't very good. They were properties, not deals. Um, And uh, from that moment, we were literally like buying, on average, one property per month. Um, That was March 2009. You know, depths of a recession. Everyone's saying, well, property values are going down. What are you doing? You know, this is the worst time to be buying property. Um, but we we just knew if we followed this system that we've been taught and, and repeat this blueprint, we'll be okay. Now, don't get me wrong. There was wobbles. There was like, are we doing the right thing? Should we just get a job? You know, all of that was quite challenging. But the mindset, the belief, um, and the resilience to just keep going through challenging times was was really vital to us. And we just focused on what do we need on a on a monthly basis to financially survive. And if we can get property to create that, then we're on our way. And we did it in about 12 months. Um, And then after that, it's like, oh, okay, well, we're not going to stop now. And then just changed, adapted strategies because you get bored doing the same thing over and over again. And yeah, that's just how our whole portfolio has kind of evolved over the last 13 years. And we haven't stopped buying um, and so when people say to us, when's the best time to buy? It's like, well, now, <laughs> now, if you know what, you know, if you know what you're doing. Yeah, so so the strategies changed, the, yeah. the, but also it wasn't just that. There was the geographical location change for you yes. too, you know. Yes. So, so you had a, a pretty good target zone you were working on. But then, as you say, you start getting bored or, or yeah. you know, it's a bit monotonous. Yeah. And, and for me, it was a case of, right, I need to try and find some scale. How do I find scale yeah. rather than necessarily putting all my time into smaller projects? Can I put just a wee bit more time into a bigger project, get some yeah. bigger results? Yeah. And so you started, you changed your geography. Yeah. You also changed the strategies. What are some of the strategies yeah. you went through? So when we started, well, we're based, based up in, in, in Edinburgh and we really focused on buy-to-let, social housing. Uh, we did a bit of sourcing. We did um, a couple of lease options across the central belt of Scotland. 
And then, well, my husband's English. You know, I've obviously got a good sense of humor because I married an Englishman. <laughs> and uh, he went to university in Birmingham. And he, he remembers as a student there that he was, he calculated how much money the landlord was making, renting out all of these rooms um, by the month. And he kind of said, oh, one day I'd love to be a landlord in Birmingham. Now, interestingly, we'd taken the blueprint that we'd learned on buying buy to lets in Scotland and we just replicated that down in Birmingham. And uh, he went down for a little recce, recce trip. And he went in to one of the estate agents and said, I want to buy properties that I can convert into student HMOs and the estate agent laughed at him said yeah you and everyone else mate like everyone wants to do that what makes you so special how long ago was this so this must have been oh god now you're asking I don't know the exact year it must be about maybe seven eight years ago now yeah so they're still saying the same thing yeah yeah, uh, yeah you and everybody else wants it Sally Oak you know student area everyone wants to do it you know um, but within 48 hours, we, you know, he had them wrapped around his finger and we had our first deal there. And it was just using techniques that we'd been told and shown, you know, all the years previously doing our buy-to-lets in Glasgow. Um, we, we managed to prove that we were serious and they, they recognized that we weren't just someone having a little stab at it. Um, they they kind of tested us. So Nick had driven down. That's a five-hour drive driven back up and then they text him said right we've got one the viewing's tomorrow and he drove back down and the <laughs> fact that he turns up with 30 other investors viewing this the guy was like this guy's serious yeah um and nick could explain exactly what he was going to do we were with the exact strategy what he was going to do and the fact that he was going to give it back to them to rent they just they he just obviously used a language that these guys were like okay yeah they're serious and then that was just Again, we started to get off-market deals. And those HMOs were cash flowing, you know, over a thousand pounds a month. So it taken us, you know, 12 months to get to three grand a month yep. with little baby buy to lets and social housing. And then here we are doing one deal that we could turn around in four months and make a thousand pounds a pop. So we're like, okay, let's just focus on this for a while because this is kind of good. Um, so yeah, complete change, student HMOs um, in Birmingham. And we did that probably for our, two to three years, we recognized that our saturation point was about five at, at one time. <laughs> that was probably a little bit us. <laughs> we got a little bit stressed at that because we were probably investing over a quarter of a million in each at the same time. And that was just quite a lot of plates to spin. Uh, so five at a time was our... Yeah, because you, 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 you're, you're um, a good advocate of using private finance as well as yeah. other development type of finance but not yeah. going straight to the bank and trying to go down the traditional route because that yeah. limits what you can do yeah so yeah as you say there's a lot of places a lot of investors a lot of different people to talk to and keep <laughs> keep things going particularly if um stuff isn't quite going to plan the planners have come back and said no you can't do it because of this and just all that stuff times yeah. five yeah yeah Fun. Yes. Fun. So after you sort of slowed that down a little bit, you did you start doing service accommodation? What what did you? Oh, so we what, what we found was we were just not getting the stock that we wanted in Birmingham. We like we got to the stage where we're like, right, we need more, we need more, and it just wasn't coming. And these properties were like hen's teeth. They just you know supply demand. We wanted it. It wasn't there for us to buy. So we just pivoted that word god pivoted yeah. i'm saying that word um but we actually just took the model and just put it at another investment area 
Um, so we did our research again. We moved the model to, to Liverpool. Very, very different numbers there. Very different demographic there. So we had to be a bit more diverse in who our end user was going to be. So we had to position it so that it could be students, but it could be professionals. It could be serviced accommodation. Um, whereas Birmingham was like, we know who the end user is. But uh, with Liverpool, the market's quite different there. It was quite an immature market. It hadn't really been created. So we were the ones creating the market there. We were finishing our HMOs to a much higher spec than what the market had. So that was, if you like, quite risky because the end values weren't there. We, we, you know, they, they just didn't exist. And we were effectively the ones trying to create that. Um, because in Birmingham, we could get our GDV's valuation, which was the same as the bricks and mortar valuation, because parents were buying ready-made HMOs for their uh, kids to go to university and live in. That did not exist in Liverpool. Yes. Yeah, so but- the importance for you, sorry, here, Caroline, is that, for the listeners, is that when, you're, when you've got that private investment, you're trying to, at some point, re-gear this give them their money back take the money back let's exactly. go do the next one so you need to make sure your end value Correct. is going to be as good and as strong as possible because sometimes for my stuff sometimes the end value because we don't sell it sometimes it's yeah. a little bit vague is this yeah. you know is it worth a million is it worth seven hundred thousand? And and for me it doesn't matter too much yeah. but but you know in your model where you're yeah. trying to do that 12 month turnaround or or sometimes less it's really important to make sure you're getting that higher value, so or at least the good value. So, how did you deal with that in a new market where the surveyors maybe weren't quite as familiar? What, what did you have to do? Yeah, well, we we had some real challenges um, with it, and we took the business decision, and it was a business decision that you know there might be a scenario where we're leaving ten to twenty grand in a deal, right? Which we hadn't ever done before, but bear in mind at this point, we're now financially in a position where leaving 10 to 20,000 pounds in a property that's cash flowing a grand a month, we're comfortable with that. Yeah. And so we were, we were less reliant on the angel finance. We had capital of our own that we could say, well, actually, if we leave you know, 20,000 pounds in a property that's cash flowing a thousand pounds a month, I'm comfortable that within a two year period, you know, we've got our money back. Um, as it turns out, the maximum we ever needed to leave in one of those was 10,000. So we were actually quite comfortable with that. And within quite a short space of time of us doing this, I would say less than a year, the mar- we started creating markets. We, you know, the market was like, okay, we're now getting the fact that this property that you're creating over here probably is going to get a commercial value up where we wanted it. So, you know, we, when we first started, we'd have a surveyor come around and value at 200 grand. Now they're getting valued up at 260 quite comfortably. Um, so then no capital required to be left um, in those transactions and in those deals. Brilliant. So the, so these are basically, these are commercial surveys, surveys of these properties because yeah. they're viewed as commercial. Yeah. And let, let's just move on to this project you've done recently because in the same yeah. sort of area. Yeah. But basically you, you took a, a rundown... Um, commercial property. It was being run as a guest house or a hotel, was it? Yeah. Yeah. And then you've you've developed it into a into a different type of model, really embracing technology. Yeah. So this is what I really want to talk about on the show because although some people, you know, some people when they talk about commercial property have quite a strong opinion of what commercial is, and for some, particularly on the outside, 
it's retail. Or certainly that's the only thing that's accessible to them as a small retail unit on their local high street or something like that. And some yeah. may think, oh, maybe I could get an industrial unit. But yeah. there are so many strategies and different ways yeah. of getting into this market and, and taking properties that aren't working particularly well yeah. and bringing them up to uh, an offer that mar- that suits the current market demand. So in this area, maybe you could just run through this project now. Yeah. You, you've, oh. you've been doing these other ones and now yeah. along comes this particular opportunity and you look at it in a different lens. Well, it, it didn't come along. We ha- we We wanted... And I'll, I'll tell you, we um, we actually saw another couple doing this model somewhere in Wales, and we thought, "Oh, that's interesting." And it was right at the time when everyone was service accommodation, service accommodation, service. It was the buzz in the property world, and we thought, "Okay, uh, we could go down the service accommodation route, or we could just go bigger." And we thought, "We'll go into a market where less people are in it, and then we think, you know." For us, that was more, we're safer, more comfortable with that. And you're right. I think that I always describe residential property and commercial property are like different species, right? You've got residential property that everyone knows it's a lion. And then you've got commercial property that's like the leopard that people know less about because it's a bit more, you know, complicated. Yeah. They're both big cats, but they're different species, right? And I do think that they are like different worlds. While you can have 20, 30 different strategies in resi, you can have 50 plus different strategies in commercial. It's like a whole new ball game. So we saw the model work for someone else. We were interested in it. And uh, it was a combination of Nick um, mentoring people all up and down the country. He'd like, he'd prefer to stay in guest houses rather than big sort of commercial hotels. And every time he was having breakfast in a guest house, the guest house owner when they discovered he was a property investor, said, would you like to buy this place? And he started to think, like, why does every guest house owner <laughs> want to sell up? Yeah. And it turns out they're knackered. They've bought this ideal of a big property that they can live in. They do the breakfast. They live by the sea. It's a holiday destination. They get to meet people. But then they realize that they're basically changing beds, getting up at 5 a.m. to do breakfasts. And two to three years of that, they're just like, I want out. So that's the combination of how this strategy kind of was born. So we wanted to choose a location where there was at least two or three reasons why people would go there. So we chose Southport because it had a convention center that would have events like comedy shows, strictly dancing tour, um, police conventions, uh, electric scooter <laughs> conventions, flying conventions, <laughs> like, name it. It's got lots of stuff going on there. I'd never heard of the place, to be honest. Um, it's got a flower show. So that's, you know, it's big for leisure. Love People love going there at the weekends and holiday times because it's got a nice beach. It's got a bit of a microclimate as well. It's always sunny there. Um, it's near Liverpool. So, again, look, it just worked because we had a building team in Liverpool as well. So that's where we started focusing. We knew the strategy. Then we chose the investment area. And then um, this property was a nine-bed guest house. It was like something out of the 1960s, 1970s in terms of decor. And the lady that um, was living in the the three-bedroomed, I want to call it, flat or apartment but actually it was a house that was kind of attached to this uh, guest house she'd been there for 20 odd years and was just ready to retire and 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 stop the business 
So yeah, it, it kind of ticked the boxes. So she had a bar area that we could turn into a profit center. She had a, a breakfast dining room that we could turn into a profit center. And what we'd established is what these guest houses massively lack in terms of their profit is the, the staff costs. Staff costs eat up so much of the profit. So we thought, right, how do we cut down on the staff costs and just make it systemized um, and combine basically service accommodation, Airbnb type idea with a larger building. So it's a bit of a hybrid, if you like. Um, so that's how it all came about. Um, so we turned it from a nine bed guest house with a three bed house kind of attached to it into an 11 bed smart boutique hotel idea. And then we've split off that three bed that can now be a serviced accommodation apartment or house that's got its own garden, separate entrance, which again for financing is quite useful because we could potentially split titles and have basically two financed assets rather than one big on the same same, uh, title deeds in Scotland or freehold in, in England. So that's uh, how it all came about. That's the concept, yeah. And what's really interesting about that is the the value add through taking the accommodation block the owner's in yeah. and the bar and the breakfast and all these different areas and creating more space. I mean, it's the same for us with office space. You find buildings where they're just not efficient. Yeah. There's maybe too many corridors or the owner's got their own big office suite or the reception is some huge space. And you're like, right, you know, that actually could make a significant impact on the figures. Because I I would guess if you weren't able to take out the accommodation, I mean, basically the numbers work because of the accommodation, the bar and the breakfast area now being converted into profit centres, as you say. And that's really where the concept is. But how how much technology do you have to bring into this? Because obviously you're now providing a space for customers to come to, to self-check in. Yep. to get their own space, there's access issues, all the sort of things that we have with our, our serviced office buildings. You know, there's there's a few things you had to bring into play there. Yeah. And I, I remember discussing during the time that some of them you were looking at and then you maybe changed your mind slightly. And so yeah. what, what were some of the key things you had to do on that? So we were looking at uh, keypad entry into the main building, which was relatively straightforward. All we need to make sure is our OTAs, so the online travel agents, Whenever there's a booking come through, the email confirmation um, has the code for the main building, which is changed regularly. So we basically have one one person that we pay an hourly rate to who is kind of nearby, who does the cleaning and change arounds and, if necessary, manages any of the guests. Right. So she will be in control of changing the keypad combination if if required. So keypad entry into the main building. Then there was a choice of a couple of systems whereby um, they could use their smartphone to get entry again through some technology into their own bedroom. And we were loving this idea. But uh, as it transpired, through a bit of market research and seeing what other uh, hotels in the area were doing, people are just not ready for that technology. They like the traditional key in their hand to get access. <laughs> yeah, so we we put a bit of a hybrid system in that we could go down the, the smartphone route as and when people are ready for that. But at the moment, what our person who... Um, 
does the, the cleaning changer and stuff is she cuts the keys and we have in the hallway a kind of pigeonhole area where there's two keys um, there that they can use um, for their bedrooms. We also have a, a keypad entry disaster zone. So if they lose their keys for, what, for whatever reason or get locked out of their room in the middle of the night, <laughs> then they can go to these wee keypad entries and get, get spare keys as well. So it's all kind of covering itself um, until people can use the smartphone. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so we, we're starting to roll that out in some of our locations, yeah, the smartphone. I, I, guys, still people still like the fobs. They do, they but, do. But there are some, to be fair, that are like, why are you using fobs? Why can't I use my phone? And and there are hybrid systems where you can do both, but yeah. I can't remember the name of the technology behind it, but basically there's a, a slightly higher grade where you can um, use all sorts of different physical or, or well the physical items phones cards whatever to get in access in what's brilliant about them is the fact that you know certainly in our world if somebody's not paying or indeed somebody an employee's been an issue or something you can just go straight on the internet or on your app both cards change they can't get in exactly exactly we looked at a system that's interesting that's got um or what do you call it like a like a, a stand so they get keypad entry into the main building and then they go to a stand. What do you call that? Like a, a terminal, if you like. Yeah. Um, and they put in a different code or a name and booking number, or whatever, and it spits the spits the, it out. Yeah. Out. You, you know, that was another potential option. Um, Expensive. So there, there's, yeah, it was four, maybe four or five thousand pounds to put that terminal in there. Yeah, we decided against that at the time. So, yeah, there's lo loads of different options with it. Cool. All right, so we've talked about how you found the property. Can we? Can you talk a little bit through the numbers on it? Is yeah. Yeah, yeah. To share so, with us what, what, what the expected amount was and what the yeah. resultant pay was. And <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the, I've always been trained to, to know the back end, like what is what are you going to have at the end and what's the value going to be? Because I always want to know, if I know what my end value is, then I know how much money I'm getting out of the deal and therefore I can make a business decision on how much money I put into the deal, right? Um, but again, you know, with commercial property, that is quite a challenge because I can do all the EBITDA calculations, I can do all the multipliers in the world, but if you look at the other properties around and they're nowhere near valued at that, then you're... There's a you know, ceiling. Yeah. There's a ceiling yeah, sometimes, yeah. So... We paid market price for this building, 340000 And we spent over about 160 on the, the development. And that was the development was both the guest house and the 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 three-bed place. Um so we're in for just over half a million. Um now, expected valuation. Well, we based all of our numbers. And you'll probably laugh at me here, Jerry. What occupancy? Super, 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 on occupancy. I'm super <laughs> cautious. Like, I'm a super safety girl. Like, okay, even if we just fill out weekends and just weekends only, that will give us like a 35% occupancy. So we based our numbers on a 35% occupancy, which is ridiculous, really. Um, you, I mean, you should comfortably be basing your numbers on, 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 like nearly double that but anyway 35 percent occupancy and 50 percent costs so we absolutely yeah. belt and braced the numbers and we still couldn't we still couldn't see how it wouldn't work 
you know that way where you're like double guessing going, yep. have we got this right um so anyway yeah the abitsa for 35 percent occupancy would give us uh, a revenue of ninety-three thousand per annum income right and I then connected with an old uni friend who turns out to be a commercial valuer. And I went for a coffee with him and he values hotels. And I said, okay, this is what we're thinking about doing. Granted, you're in Scotland, I'm in Scotland. Um, but what would you do? He said, well, I would value this as a guest house rather than a hotel. And we'd look at a 10 to 15 times multiplier. And we'd based everything on like a seven times multiplier. Yeah. Maybe. So we're like, okay, Um at 10 times, which is the, the minimum he'd said, at 93, that's 930 grand value. Um, so the numbers on paper stacked up, but I think realistically with my sensible head on, it will probably value around about the 725, maybe 750 mark compared to the other buildings in, in the area. Because right? some people look at it and say you've got a certain amount of trading, well, a lot yeah. of it's based on trading here. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, trading. And he said, look, most banks will need two years trading, but we have got, you know, we have had experience with some back banks that do 12 months trading. And of course, we were due to open our doors in March 2020. Yes. When that, come on to that. Yeah. <laughs> popped up. So I reckon we'll probably be three years in the deal before we probably refinance. I would and how's your investors feeling about that and how did well, you manage that? Yeah, well, the good news is we chose investors that uh, didn't want their money back. So they were like, look, here's my money. Uh, the fact that you're saying two years is great, but, you know, make sure that you have something after that to get to put the money into. Yeah. So that's why we chose those particular angel investors, because this was our first toe into this strategy we didn't want to take any any risks on any angel investor saying oh uh, you know i want my money back after 12 months or whatever so they're they're really comfortable one in particular is delighted about covid because <laughs> it's long term long term money yeah <laughs> so, these returns so covid came along last summer you were able to start opening up a little bit and yeah. then obviously you know things sort of paired off a little bit where, where are we at right now in terms of i mean I, i've tried to book on um service accommodation recently there it's hard to find anything uh, yeah. how are you finding the market then so um the the interestingly the three bed self-contained well we call it a flat it you know it is a uh, got two levels that has been going like hotcakes like it's been really really busy even over the kind of lockdown periods when it was kind of easing guess what the local council rented it for people that I think we're in a vulnerable position and needed house really quickly. So they paid us five grand for one month and then they extended it for another two and a half weeks and gave us another three grand. So we made £8,000 from this three beds. Six weeks, wow. <laughs> right? For for like a, uh, yeah, like an, a seven, eight week period. So, well, and, and families were more comfortable because it's got a garden, because it's got area for the kids to sleep in. Families... It's been really, really popular, that three bed, which is actually making us think, well, maybe we'll just look for more properties like that in the area. The guest house or hotel, it was full two weekends ago, completely full at capacity. Um, and, and the bookings are just slowly but steadily coming in. Um, you know, we're comfortable with that. I think, you know, our expectation is we'd written off last year, we'd written off this year, 
So, and we've had grants from the government. So we, we're fairly comfortable, we're fairly happy with it. Look, it hasn't gone to plan, but I think because we are quite cautious investors and we absolutely look for the, at the worst case scenario, I mean, we didn't think about a pandemic, like a grant, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> on the numbers, we, you know, it's not risking our portfolio, it's not risking any other part of our business. And I think that's a part that a lot of people starting out get worried about is that, what if I lose everything? What if I lose my house? Like, well, just don't risk it. Um, yeah. And set up your business in a way that you're you're you you're not risking yourself or putting yourself or exposing yourself to market The other really important thing, though, is is that you don't have to go out on your first project and find something that's going to win you all the prizes in the world. Yeah. You just got to go and get some some basic smaller deals that are going to start giving you cash flow. Because when you buy a deal like the one you're talking about there, if that's your first deal, that is a risk. Oh, but big. as your portfolio grows and you bring in an asset that's maybe worth half a million quid, it it, it might only be 5% of your portfolio. So yeah. actually the overall risk is very low because it's, it's within this pot, isn't it, with all these other assets. Yeah. So it's important just to think, well, this is a great strategy to go for, but where am I right now and what do I need to build up? And certainly when we work with a bank to start with, we would have we would buy assets that had good income. Because that's really all they would let us buy. Yeah. But each time we bought a new one, we push the envelope a little bit. So it might be that we would do something that had less vacancy. Sorry, more vacancy. And then yeah. eventually we could buy a building that had no income at all. But yeah. by then, it was such a small piece that the risk was mitigated. Yeah. This is and you've also got cash flow. Yeah. It's the, it's the cash flow from your business. Yeah. It's the serviceability of the debt, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. That's important. And so, yeah, we're we're quite comfortable with that. I think the plan is probably to get maybe one more there just to scale it. I mean, we can use the same person, we can use the yeah. same build, you know, builder, um, and then move on from that. We probably will, because, you know, you've got to understand that you are actually going into the hospitality market. You're not so much property now, you're hospitality. Yeah. Funnily enough, my buy-to-let tenants can't leave a, a TripAdvisor report uh, online about me as a landlord, but... <laughs> On a hotel, they certainly can, and that can yeah. massively help. A, one, a one-star review because you got the wrong bar of soap in the sheet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Okay, so, and, and certainly just if we just come up for a second, I do remember um, from previous discussions, that market has got quite a lot of different things going on, and you did mention a conference centre around, but there's also quite a lot of golf around there. and Yes, oh, go, yeah, okay. that's, that's a so really good point. There, there's quite a diverse target yeah. market really isn't there yeah so there's five championship golf courses um that are near this location so what we did is we kept the lounge as a lounge and we yep. turned the bar into a kitchen so that golfers coming from overseas can take the whole building and we turned the basement into a golf locker like a golf locker room that's got its own entrance. So if they've been out golfing, they can go straight into the basement, hang up on any of their wet clothes, keep their um, bags there, and their uh, there's charging units for their... their so sounds their like stuff. a ski lodge. Yeah, I know, right? But for golf... <laughs> yeah. Um, but what, what we've done with that is we're going to just review and see, well, how many bookings do we get for the whole building? And if that is actually really small we can then turn those other two rooms like the communal lounge 
and the kitchen area into another two profit centres and turn it into a, a 13 bed. Um, we can add another two bedrooms there. So we have got some some flexibility to change and adapt. Yeah, um, but, e- but equally, if the other side works well, then yeah. you just you change your marketing and pitch it more for that. And because the problem is, of course, you get a booking for two people. Now you can't book up a, a golf group without having a really bad TripAdvisor review. So, yeah, yeah, so yeah. yeah, but that's it's important, isn't it, to have that flexibility and just keep your eyes open to what's actually coming through the doors. Yes, exactly, exactly. All right, so with this experience of going a little bit more into commercial, particularly buying a commercial asset, there's things like VAT and other complications maybe there what what did you what did this one teach you about the transaction and about the finance that was a little bit different than normal um it's a different it's a different world right like i said about the species it's you know while you've got property experience in on the resi side you you are in a massive learning curve now i bought i bought commercial properties before to develop into resi so pubs um, I loved uh, buying pubs and, and converting them, getting planning and converting them. And uh, the financing and the VAT are probably the two biggest things. Um, then you need to look at, obviously, if, if planning is required, um, the fire regs and all, all of those elements just take a slightly more intense uh, intense part to play when you're when you're going into bigger buildings um, that you wouldn't really get involved. Yeah, there's a lot with. more report writing and 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 paperwork, annual or biannual. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things yeah. to look yeah. after. Yeah, compliance, yeah. shall we say? Yeah. It, it did get me excited though, because what I would say to any of your listeners is there's less people operating in that market because it is more complicated. I, look, I'm going to say it's more advanced. I would say it's more complicated than Resi. Most people out there think they know how to buy a property because they live in one and it's like yeah deposit mortgage bomb got a property right when it comes to commercial buying like a shop on the high street or an industrial shed or an office block they're not so confident on how that works because they don't live in it they they don't know how that none of their parents have bought one so i think less people operate in that market therefore less competition more opportunities um, and that's why it's I, for me. I think it's a really exciting, um, an exciting market to be in. What's your thoughts moving forward about commercial? Then, um, are you going to continue with maybe developing this type of offer, or are you looking at one or two other opportunities? You know what I'm looking at. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go on for the sake of our listeners, Carly. What else are you looking at, and why are you looking at them? Okay, well, that's it. Okay, so um, again, what what we've done is we are very much like a cookie cutter. We, 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 we find a model, we find that model works, and then we repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. And then we're always looking for new cookie cutters. Um, we had a student that Nick um, mentored, and he was quite experienced in industrial sheds. And he had bought a big old industrial shed, massive big unit, and then he split it up into smaller, more affordable, uh, well, affordable is the wrong way of phrasing it, more uh, easily rentable, I would say. More accessible, really. Yeah. Um, And added the value that way. So we started looking at that and started speaking to some agents, started looking at it, started getting offers out on things. 
Um, and again, it, that's, a, that's a learning experience for us because we've not bought an industrial shed before, but we're just applying a lot of the, the same principles that we've had yeah. in the past by buying a property, adding value to it, um, pushing the value of it up through its, rent, uh, its revenue yeah. um, and financing it in, put your money in, get most of your money back out and then have a cash flowing asset. So industrial sheds is something we're quite keen on. And what the pandemic has has done is just redistribute wealth, right? So people who've lost businesses or lost jobs, that money hasn't just disappeared. It's just been redistributed to people who are adopting a strategy or a plan or a system that currently does work. Um, and I think e-commerce, you know, Distribution of food, ready-made food, uh, are two businesses that have absolutely exploded during during the pandemic, and they will need space for those businesses. So that that's what I'm looking at at the moment, and I know that you're looking at it at the same time. <laughs> well, the, the 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 dichotomy though is that most of the world's looking at industrial and that's why yields yield rates are really tight at the moment yeah. and everybody's running away from retail so if you were stood on the outside looking in you'd maybe say well people are running away from retail but lots of people are wanting industrial not just from um the tenant point of view but the, the, the investor point of view that maybe there's an opportunity there for some retail and i know that certainly in the us there's more of this activity going on where out out of town shopping areas yeah. are not performing well, becoming more vacant. Some of the larger funds or private um, offices are looking at redeveloping these. The key thing, of course, is that when you've got a leased space that you're taking on, sorry, when you're taking on a building that's got some leases out on it, is yeah. if they've got a long time to go, you effectively will need to buy that customer out. So that really devalues those properties. So it's really getting creative around how you can make that work. But I think there's definitely opportunity there where that retail section is, is losing value yeah. and industrial is so much in demand from an investor point of view and customer point of view. So that that's where I'm trying to find the opportunities. But of course, you know, you're spinning plates, you're doing all the other things as well. Yep. yep. You know, and it's trying to um, make sure that you're keeping focused on the day job as well as looking out for the next, the next investment. And look, we're we're gonna carry on buying buy to lets as well. Like we, that's like our our bread and butter. Don't get me wrong; it's been a few years since we've done the baby buy to lets, but you know, you just you you supply where the demand is, and people need places to live, right? So we we're quite comfortable just carrying on um, using the models that work. Yeah, being yeah. opportunistic whenever they come up. So, and as you. As you go on through this whole process, you do learn more strategies, of course. So yeah. when problem buildings come up, you have more ways of approaching them. But that yeah. time that comes over time, doesn't it? You have to start out with something. You've got yeah. to pitch pitch yourself somewhere, start off with some strategy, but then the others will start to appear, won't they? Certainly our our my strategy now really is finding the knackered buildings. I mean we talked specifically about retail industrial, but it's really finding buildings that people don't quite know what to do with to yeah. then reposition them. Bit like you did with a guest house into something that's suiting where market demand is now yeah rather than necessarily having a cookie cutter yeah but. and i think the network the network that you're involved with really helps you with that as well if you're just out there solo just trying to conjure up a strategy it doesn't really work like that if you're around people who are active investors yeah. you're learning from them all the time 
Um, and, and somebody could be doing something six hours away from where you live or invest and go, oh, that works for them there. Cool. I'm going to model that in my investment area. Absolutely. Yeah. You just said that about the guys down in Wales doing yeah. the strategy first. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. All right. So let's just move on briefly because we cannot have a conversation without talking about property training, can we, Caroline? Okay. Apart from anything else, that's where we met, right? And then where did we re-meet again? But at a training, not necessarily specifically property, but, you know, we came across each other during a mastermind again. It's like, hello, Jerry, what? <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> um, so, you know, love it or hate it, the training is there, isn't it, in this industry? It's been there for a long time. And people have their opinions. Many people have very strong opinions on it. Yeah, they do, oh, yeah. don't they? Right. So yeah. let's just have a quick chat about property training. And let's just cover that off because I myself are involved in helping um, people with commercial. And yeah. you've been helping people for a number of years. And just to give this a little bit of context, how many people do you think you've actually trained now, Caroline, in your sideline from your business? Uh, do you know what? It I, I tried to work it out, so it's been 11 years. Yeah. And I've been to events where I've trained like 10,000 people on one <laughs> event. So I reckon it's in the hundreds of thousands at vid- at different points of their investment journey. But it's in the hundreds of thousands all over yeah. the world, from like yeah. Hong Kong, Singapore, Thailand, to France, uh, Germany. But it's always about buying income-generating assets here, here in the U.K., this market yeah. specifically. So, yeah, I would say hundreds of thousands. Yeah. It's crazy. And I, and I, and I crazy. know there'll certainly be some of them, our listeners will definitely know you from being through some of those trainings. You know? yeah. Some of your other guests, I think, probably. Well, indeed, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's a small world, isn't it? It's a small yeah. world. And, yeah. and do you know what? What I find fascinating is when there's discussions online about training and things, Yeah. and when you meet people um, who've been through trainings, you can absolutely tell the ones that are serious, have been through some training, are making things happen. Yeah. There are some people that just they just stand out and they're not being overt about it. You yeah. can just tell. Yeah. So what I wanted to ask you was if a student appears before you in the past, what are the characteristics of maybe that have set them apart, and I'm pretty sure this is all mindset, but maybe you can you can set me wrong on there. Maybe it's to do with money, maybe it's to do with background, but what are the key characteristics for those that have taken on board the training and just gone and made stuff happen? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's so, when you've been doing it for so long, it's so clear to me who's going to make it and who's not. It's like literally night and day. Who's serious, who's not serious, who's going to make it, who's not going to make it. Um, So the first characteristic that I'd say I believe is the most important is humility. They're humble. They don't think they know it all. They know that there's more to learn. Uh, They keep their ego in check. And in this property game, two things are going to kill you, ego and greed, (laughs) right? And so if they've got their ego in check and they're like, look, I'm – I'm here, I'm open, I'm ready to learn. I don't know all, I know there's more to learn. Um, then for me, that is the number one characteristic that I want. That's the type of person I want to work yeah. with. And, and look, I've been in the game 23 years. I still don't know it all. Like I, I keep my ego in check. You know, I'm not doing multi-million pound developments because that just ain't my strategy. So I know that I could learn that if that was one of the strategies I wanted to do. So I think it's really important that you keep your ego in check and know that there are people out there 
that are better than you, that you could learn something from. Um, so that's the first one, ego. Uh, next, the hunger, the reason that they want to do it. So if someone is in a relatively comfortable position, as in their job pays them reasonably well, um, financially, they're okay. Of course they would want more, but they're okay. They're cruising along. Lifestyle's not too bad. They would like more. They're never going to do anything. because you must, no- I'm going to challenge you on that, though. There must be some that actually come along that are re- they already – have a reasonable level of success yeah but now they're wanting to add a new strategy or or maybe what they've done is they've created some good income somewhere else yeah but now they want to try and create more investment in their life yeah so so from the outside they may be doing all right yeah but and and they are doing all right yeah but they want to change and and the drive that's gotten to the point they are in is going to get them onto the next stage. So there must be some that have come through. They're not all paupers when they come to you and then no, suddenly no, no. become super. No, it's no, no. So let me so let okay. So let me be a bit more articulate in that. So I I I can literally put it into three categories of people, right? So you've got people, and I, it's like three lanes in the motorway. Over here in the slow lane, you've got people who've got a pain in their life, some discomfort. It might be in a relationship they're not comfortable with, hate their job or financial, whatever the pain is, there's something that they're not happy with that they want to change. So that's the pain lane. Then you've got the middle lane, the cruisers, the guys who are like, life's okay. I would like more, but things are uh, not too bad as they are right now. And then you've got the fast lane. And this is for the people who have an absolute clarity on why they want to create income generating assets so it's like I want to be a full-time dad or uh, I want to have my own recording studio or uh, I, I need the legacy for the case or something that's driving them right and the and the two lanes of the motorway that are the absolute ones that win are the pain lane and the fast lane so the guys that it, it, actually financials is, is not really part of it but the guys that in the middle that could do more but maybe don't need to do more. If they don't have a strong reason that pushes them into that fast lane, they'll stay in that middle lane. And then what happens is some kind of car crash is ahead around the blind corner that they hadn't expected. And it could be like the death of a loved one, a doctor giving them bad news, the loss of a job, something that in every adult's life we're going to experience roughly every five years, right? And that's going to push them into the pain lane. And then they'll do something because they've got no perspective. Um, and it now it drives them to do something. So that's how I describe it. That's how I've seen it over the last 11 but years. Interest, but interestingly, you'll have people that come on training that do that are in all three lanes. Oh, yeah, they've got... So, so, so the guys in the middle might come off the other end and don't really do anything yep. um, and maybe talk about it, but they don't yep. really do anything. And then there's the others that just quietly get on with it because they have to. They have to. And it is... Yeah. It's the absolute purpose for you doing it that is the thing that will shape um, their success. And if it doesn't mean that much to them, they're not going to do it. So what are the other things? Because we went off down a rabbit hole there. What are the other things that these, the ones that you've observed become really successful? What what are the other characteristics? Or indeed some of the things that maybe you would have thought they needed, but actually it had no relevance. So, yes. for instance, you know, a good one is finance, particularly in commercial. People, oh, you need money. You need loads of money. So yeah. I can't do it. So I'm going to go and do something else. Yeah. No, it's so ego, humility, uh, a strong reason to do it. Those two. 
And then just action takers, like they, they just don't, nothing will stop them. They're resilient, they're persistent, they don't give up. That's it in a nutshell. It, it really isn't rocket science. Like property is actually very, very simple, but it's just not easy. Yep. And when you get challenges, you have to have the strength of character to be like, cool, there'll, there'll be a solution to this. I just need to start asking around and asking for help and, you know, finding out what the solution is. And having that type of characteristic where you are just ref- like a little, like a little terrier with a bone, refusing to let go of it. It's because reason, Yeah, because the reason you're doing it means so much to you. It all comes back to that why. Why are you doing it? And if you don't really have a strong purpose or reason for doing it, you just won't. Yeah, just so, won't. certainly some of the some of the guys that, that have come and started working with me because they want to start developing a commercial strategy as part of their mix mm. that have come through with working with yourself and Nick. I mean, you can really tell that yeah. there that that characteristic of um come what may yeah i will work my way through this yeah but equally not having any kind of panic attack yeah just a just a pragmatic approach you know and and, and you know you do ask yourself well is that is that just an innate character or can that be taught yeah um and I think sometimes people just, they're not aware of the context. So it's difficult for them even to really think about that. And, you know, the way that they approach things is systematic of how they've been conditioned and how they've been brought up. And actually you can alter that, but it is a conscious thing. You do have to recognize those traits in yourself and then actually take a step back and say, hold on a minute, right? Is that me? Is that what I'm doing? Yeah. How do I change that? And yeah. some of them is getting yourself around people that are, that are that way. So yeah. one of the things that I've found really refreshing work with guys that have come through other training, particularly um, with yourself and, and Nick and co, is that that mindset of I'm going to absorb and uh, from the as much as I can from my peers as yeah. well as kind of the content of whatever we're delivering or talking about, yeah. because that's where the growth really comes from is, is changing your, your mindset about how you think and about how you approach problems, life, whatever. But that yeah. only really comes through exposing yourself to stuff like that. So if you don't decide to just expose yourself to it, you're never going to get that change. It's quite interesting, isn't it? And it's definitely like an out-of-body thing, isn't it? You've got to really think about it. It's a bit like the Matrix, right? You, you kind of open Pandora's box and you can take the pill to keep going during yeah. the rabbit hole and learn more stuff. Or you just keep carrying on living your life as you live your life. But, you know, the amount of people we're meeting at the moment, particularly uh, because of the pandemic, they are riddled with fear. So what they're doing is they're trying to get as much information as they can for free on YouTube or podcasts, and they think that's going to be the solution. But the reality is until you actually put money where your mouth is and in yourself, what's going to push you? I mean, look, I know how much I spent, right? And it was it was chunky. I spent £22,000 learning how to do this. So when I spent that money that I didn't have, I'm like, I'm in. Like, that. this has to work now. Like, that, yeah. that not be, I'm not BSing about this. I'm serious. So the people that kind of dabble around it, you know, try and get all the free stuff, and I'm going to speak to lots and lots of people, they will literally do nothing because they never have this sort of bespoke laser vision focus on just getting it done. We had to talk about property training, right? We had yeah. to. 
Um, and and you know what I really like about property training is is what it teaches me. You know, and as you say, you can come across other people that are doing other things and all that stuff, but it teaches you lots and lots about your own strategy. It makes you articulate it better, it makes you think and concentrate on actually what do I really what's the best value I can give mm. so that people can progress rather than just a chit chat, which yeah, is what you yeah. get when you're at the bar or something. It's actually you really have to think about what you're delivering so that it really has an impact. And that, yeah. that makes you think more about what you do on a day-to-day -day basis so that you get better at it. It's really quite yeah. a good, yeah. good situation. I mean, the, people, the people who are most viciously against, and they are literally vicious against property training, are the ones that have never done it. Yes. Um, so they're basing it on, well, not all the information. And I, look, I had 10 years without training, and I did it all wrong. And that cost me time, and it cost me money. And then I invested the money, and I spent the last 13 years doing all right so you pay for it one way or another which way would you like to pay for it is, yeah. i guess the, the the bottom line isn't it <laughs> right caroline we're um we're going to draw it a close thank yep. you so much for joining me um real pleasure always great fun being around you um if anybody wants to know um any more about you caroline we will put some stuff in the show notes but do you want to just quickly tell us where people can find you um yep. what your training business is called and anything else that you think would be relevant? Well, you can find me on all the channels, uh, LinkedIn and uh, Instagram is Caroline underscore Clayton underscore property and uh, check out Property Wealth System, which is our uh, training business. And we have some free webinars on there, um, which can link you up to all of the other offerings that uh, the trainings have. Brilliant. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us on the Commercial Property Investor Podcast, Caroline. We look forward to talking to you about that industrial building when you get it. <laughs> and revisit it. Yeah. Brilliant. If anyone's had any, any thoughts or questions you'd like to ask Caroline, drop into um, the Facebook group. To do that, you'll need to go to all the W's, facebook.com forward slash commercial property investor that'll take you to the page just click on the group join group section and in there you can join in the conversation ask caroline anything you want i'm sure you'd be willing to yeah. view any posts that come in there caroline of course, so of course. thanks very much um look forward to speaking to you all again very soon take care have a great week in commercial <laughs>